Oh, buckle up. <laughs> Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 70. This is part two of Shitty McGee. Mm-hmm. I don't like that guy. Panzerim? Panzerim. Fucking guy. Carl Panzerim. It gets crazier. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, this is pretty crazy. <sighs> okay, well... We know that it's a big file. We've mm -hmm. already opened it, and we've gone through about half of it. Mm -hmm. And this is the crazy half. Mm -hmm. So, here we go. Here we go. Open it up. Okay, so where did we leave off last week? Terrible things. Oh, yes. Carl yep. Carl, <laughs> Carl Panzerum had attempted to hack a police officer to death while robbing a train station mm. and had yet again landed himself behind bars. Now, you would think at some point this guy would realize that crime doesn't pay, but... Mm. No. He appears to be on a mission to break every law he can while he's alive. Penal code, bingo. Now, a few weeks after he was arrested, he was indicted by a grand jury on the Larchmont robbery. In the jail sentence, with this jail sentence clearly ahead of him, Pansrum thought he might try to beat the system. He knew he'd be found guilty, so in hopes of a lighter sentence, he'd contacted the DA and said he would plead guilty in order to get some leniency. Hmm. But that's not what happened at all. I'm going to play the role of the dickhead. I kept my side of the bargain, but he didn't. I pleaded guilty and was immediately given the limit of the law. Five years. At once, I went to Sing Sing. Yep, Sing Sing Prison. Nice place. Now, this place was not to be taken lightly. I, I mean, no prison was known as a vacation. However, Sing Sing was a heavy hitter. Whippings and floggings were considered commonplace punishments at Sing Sing. Lovely. Frequently used was the cat of nine tails. We mm. talked about that in last week's episode. Lovely thing. That Very nice. cruel whipping contraption whose lashes were often tipped with metal or barbs. Glass barbs and shit, yeah. Yeah. So its, its use was finally abolished by the New York State Legislature in 1848. Not totally. But... I think that's kind of funny because they were using it on him. With the advent of the electric chair in 1891, Sing Sing became notorious for its executions. Now, although the electric chair was developed at neighboring Auburn State Prison, almost all executions within the state were carried out at Sing Sing until 1963. The infamous death chair was later moved to Greenhaven Prison. Now, this prison housed the famous and the infamous, from bank robber Willie Sutton and accused spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to mass murderers Albert Fish and the Son of Sam. Evidently, Carl Panzerum knows no remorse and no rock bottom. He landed himself in Sing Sing. However, he wouldn't stay there for very long. While it was a maximum security prison, it was just a transitory location for men like Carl Panzerum. Mm. Prisoners like Panzerum, hardened by the system and difficult to control, were routinely sent upstate to Clinton Prison, better known as Danamora, where they were removed from the general inmate population and subject to the mercy of guards used to dealing with hostile inmates. 
Uh, so yeah, you you heard that right. Carl Pan's room was too mean for Sing Sing Prison. Nice. <laughs> they were like, yeah, our prison's really bad. That's a small group. I know. It's like right? the forty forty club in baseball. <laughs> there's only four or five people where they're like, you're just. <laughs> It's way up there. Sing Sing's like, our prison's terrible. We got the electric chair. Mm. You better not get out of line. Like, you better not cause any problems or we'll fry your ass after ripping the skin off your body. But this guy, this fucker over here, up north, up mm. north with you. Let's mm. go. We're, yeah. not, we're not having your kind around here. Mm. So, it seems that prisoners that were consistent problems for staff or were too aggressive caused too many problems with other inmates, basically just too violent in general, they were sent to Danamora. Just when you think it couldn't get worse than Sing Sing, oh, it does. Hmm. So we're going to learn a little bit about Danamora. So Clinton Correctional Facility mm-hmm. is a New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision Maximum Security State Prison for Men Located in the village of Danamora, New York. That's a hell of a fucking sentence. <laughs> the prison is sometimes colloquially mm-hmm. referred to as Danamora. Hell of a fucking word. Having once served as a massive insane asylum named Danamora State Hospital for the criminally insane. Now, Danamora was also colorfully known as the hellhole. Mm. And it was located 10 miles from the Canadian border and was considered the end of the line. It was a place of no return and the reputation of being America's most brutal, repressive prison. Mm. Carl Panzerum was sent there in October of 1923. And as with many prisons of the time, the guards at Danamora carried silver-tipped canes that were used to prod the inmates along and sometimes beat them into submission. And also in case of werewolves. (laughs) Incoming inmates like Panzerum were stripped naked, and any possessions they had were immediately confiscated from their person. Now, while the methods the staff used to keep the inmates in line were fairly common for the American prison system of the day, there was one thing that Danamora possessed that was unique. Many of the guards on staff were literally related Hmm. due to several generations of prison employees being employed there, Hmm. mostly French Canadians who lived in that area. (laughs) This made the attitudes of the guards towards the inmates particularly brutal since the attitudes... Yeah, well, since these attitudes towards the criminals were passed down from generation to generation and perpetuated by decades of harsh repression and outright abuse... Danamora is still a functional prison, although it is not as bad as it used to be. I think there was a jailbreak as recent as 2018, which would have been unheard of back in the time that Carl Panzerum and the other inmates served time there. So during the time that Panzerum was in Danamora, the walls were 30 feet high, but they also extended 30 feet below the ground Mm. to prevent anyone from tunneling under the walls to escape. No digging, not even werewolves. Right. Basically, in the guards' view at this time, inmates were no better than animals who deserved the harshest treatment possible. Many of the prisoners there suffered mental breakdowns due to the staggeringly brutal conditions, and those who did were simply carted across the courtyard, literally right across the courtyard, and dumped in the Danamora State Hospital for the criminally insane. Hmm. Now, the halls of the hospital were filled with the screams and the broken forms of forgotten inmates. Lost in a sea of bureaucracy and neglect, this place truly was the final stop before hell. This prison was so infamously brutal 
that in the same courtyard was a home for the criminally insane. Mm -hmm. So the criminally insane inmates would be transported just across the way and just kind of left there. Right. Not that there were they were there for any kind of um, actual formal treatment. They were just basically dumped there and forgotten about. Hmm. So it was not a nice place. And Carl Pansrum was there. Hmm. Now, I can bet you might be able to imagine how this is going to go. <laughs> it made him nicer. He, he was reformed. Uh, so none of this seemed to deter the force of nature that was Carl Pansrum. Within weeks of arriving, he had devised and constructed a firebomb to burn down the workshops, but some of the guards found the device and dismantled it. I was there only a few months when I made a time bomb and tried to burn down the shops. The screws found it, but didn't blame me for it. Later, he attempted to kill one of the guards while he napped in a chair. I hit him on the back of the head with a 10-pound club. It didn't kill him, but it was good and sick, and he left me alone after that. <laughs> guys, guys, weird. Makes sense to leave the, a guy alone that does that shit. Right. The, the conditions were outrageous. The work was tedious and long, and the food no better than greasy slop, unfit for animal consumption. And much like other places Pandrum had stayed, he was determined to escape before filling his entire sentence. Danamora was no exception. He would make his first escape attempt within months of arriving. He built a ladder out of scrap wood and uh, laundry cart slats. But unfortunately, when he was climbing and he was near the top of the wall, he would fall. As I was learning about this, I read that the guards would speak uh, while well, they talked about it. I don't know if they still tell the stories to this day, but the guards would speak in reverence of the attempt that was made by this man who seemed to be an unstoppable force. Hmm. This part actually makes me wonder if they were just watching him go up the ladder. I mean, can you imagine the conversation going on there? Mm -hmm. I mean, were they taking bets? Is he going to make it? No way know. he Is makes he it. Make it? <laughs> that looks like a shitty ass ladder, you know? So he was near the top of the wall and the ladder broke under his weight. Because it's shitty. Well, as you can imagine, it's not the best ladder. No. It's scrap wood. And he was actually a 200 pound human being. Hmm. And he fell. And when he hit, he hit hard. Yeah. He broke both of his legs and both of his ankles. Yeah. He also badly injured his spine. Yeah. So despite his horrifying injuries, he received no medical attention no, that's instead he was carried into a cell and dropped unceremoniously onto the hard concrete floor here's what he said i fell about 30 feet onto a concrete walk breaking both of my ankles both of my legs fracturing my spine and rupturing myself in this condition i was carried to the prison hospital where i lay five days and then dumped into a cell without any medical or surgery attention whatsoever that's going to be a message to others don't try this. This is what you get. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. In that condition, I was left for eight months, crawling around like a snake with a broken back, seething with hatred and a lust for revenge. Finally, after 14 months, he was taken to the hospital where he was operated on for a ruptured hernia and one of his testicles was removed. Eee. His injuries from the escape attempt and fall would leave him permanently disabled for the rest of his life. This didn't seem to slow him down, though. Still a murderous cunt. Sure. Shortly after his operation, he was caught sodomizing another inmate and was thrown into solitary confinement and there was virtually ignored by prison staff. I suffered more agony for many months, always in pain, never a civil answer from anyone. 
Always a snarl or a curse or a lying hypocritical promise which was never kept. The last two years and four months confined in isolation with nothing to do except brood upon what I thought was the wrongs that had been done to me. This went on for all of my five years, and the more they misused me, the more I was filled with the spirit of hatred and vengeance. I was so full of hate, there was no room in me for such feelings as love, pity, kindness, or honor or decency. I hated everybody I saw. Likely driven further into madness by the isolation and solitary, he began to devise devious plans of murder on a mass scale. So the last two years of his sentence, now remember, this was only a five, five years at Danamora. Right. So let's keep that in perspective. This is a relatively short sentence at a really terrible prison. Right. But the last two years of his sentence were served in isolation. So he had virtually no contact with anyone, with guards, with any staff, with anybody. So you can kind of imagine his mindset. Just to clarify, today's psychologists are on the verge of classifying solitary confinement in prisons as inhuman treatment. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure how many prisons still employ this method within their protocol, but there are a lot of psychologists who argue against it because it's been proven to drive people past the point of sanity. So, two years and four months. The end of his sentence spent by himself in pain in solitary confinement when this guy already had a terrible attitude to begin with. It just made him more mad, and it just made him hate everyone even worse. So in his letters, he expressed a desire to blow up a railway tunnel with a, uh, while a passenger train was traveling through it. Just a you know bucket list item. Uh, well, he had a plan to have formaldehyde canisters uh, basically placed in the tunnel. So when the wreckage hit, they would explode, sending poison gas into the wreckage. Hmm. He would barricade the end of the tunnel that led to safety and stand there with a gun, quote, picking off any stragglers who had the will to live, end quote. Wow. He also expressed a desire to blow up a bridge in New York City and rob the dead and injured as they lay on the ground. The Panama Canal would have suffered a similar fate had Carl Panzerum had his way. So that makes me wonder, would you rather deal with a multitude of bears or this guy? In your life. I mean, at least the bear's going to like shoot straight so, with you and it's just got a few weapons. It's so just like, what is can it, I do with a hot air balloon and um, some TNT? <laughs> so is that is that a multitude of bears all at once? Yeah. Or just one at a time? Oh, maybe one at a time. It's really, you know, do you have to deal with bears a few times in your life? Or this, you have to deal with this guy this one This guy is time. fucking insane. Very bad. Okay, so perhaps his most elaborate of the supervillain schemes. It's one of the coyote And the one the one he was sure would have had the highest body count was the one where he planned to poison the water supply and kill everyone in the village of Danamora. He wanted to drop a large quantity of arsenic into a stream that fed the town's reservoir, Fuck. ensuring the deaths of quote men, children women, even cats and dogs, he would later say. Hmm. Finally, in July of 1928, after serving a hard five years, Pandrum was released from Danamora, but he was permanently crippled by the lack of medical attention and lost in the depths of a rage-filled madness. He was unleashed on the world once again. Why? Why? How? Who? What? 
So after his release, he was consumed by revenge for the way he had been treated at Dannemora. (laughs) He's fine. Let him out. uh, Guy guy looks healthy to me. (laughs) Every vein in his neck is standing out. Sure, let him go. Uh, if, if he couldn't level the town to cinders, someone else would have to pay the price. So within two weeks of freedom, he had committed dozens of burglaries and had killed at least one man during the course of a robbery in Baltimore. By the time he was arrested again for stealing a radio and delivered to a Washington, D.C. jail, Pansrum was a scary sight indeed. He stood over six feet tall and years of hard labor had crafted his body into 200 pounds of sheer muscle and burning hatred. He was meanness incarnate and hated everything that was human. Hmm. He had a large tattoo of a boat anchor on his left forearm. (laughs) And Right, and another and another anchor with an eagle and the head of a Chinese man on his right forearm. Quacky. Across his chest were two eagles, wings spread with the words liberty and justice tattooed beneath them. <laughs> Ironic. His eyes were a steel gray and he had a thick black mustache that gave his lip the appearance of a perpetual sneer. Hmm. He gave his real name for the first time in years at the time of booking. So, Pandrum was arrested for a housebreaking charge, which was relatively minor. And when the police brought him in, he said, this is a very small charge. I've actually committed numerous murders over the years. Yeah, compared to all the shit he's done, it's like, yeah. yeah. This is nothing. This is so, me collecting stamps, basically, <laughs> compared to what I normally well, do. Well, the authorities had no idea that he was arrested in Oregon. That he was arrested in Montana and these other jurisdictions. The out- jurisdictional. <laughs> jurisdictions. Jurisdictionals. Out-, <laughs> out west because he always used a different name upon his arrest. Hmm. It's at this time that he begins to talk about a couple of murders that he committed. This is the very first time that we can confirm that he ever even talks about his prior crimes. Pandrum's remarks about killing children caught notice of the guards. Inquiries were then made into other states and word returned from several jurisdictions that he was a wanted man. The story begins to gather momentum in the newspapers about this prisoner that is being held in a D.C. jail who's confessing to a lot of murders. Word got around to the press, and they soon got a hold of the story of the sadistic killer who sat in a D.C. jail who was confessing a lot. On October 28, 1928, the Washington Post reported that Pansrum had confessed to the murder of a 14-year-old Philadelphia paperboy, Alexander Lozick. The previous August, he also confessed to the murder of a little George McMahon in Salem, Massachusetts. Mm. Each day that passed, Pansrum talked more and more. And if that ain't enough, he said, I'll give you plenty more. I've been all over the world, and I've seen everything, he says. He's done all the crimes. He's playing <laughs> right, crime bingo. Right. He's playing crime bingo. Crime bingo. Inside the Washington, D.C. jail at that time was a very young 25-year-old guard by the name of Henry Lesser. Now, Lesser was a new guard and somewhat idealistic, very unlike the stereotypical prison guard of his day. So over the next few weeks, Henry Lesser couldn't help but notice the inmate with the cold eyes and odd look who never really talked to anyone. According to Henry, quote, he was a husky man and he walked with a limp. After I was at the jail a short time, I happened to hear that there was a person at the South Wing where I was working at the time. 
He seemed to be a very interesting person. And the first opportunity I had, I went past his cell and got to talking to him. End quote. Lesser befriends Pan's room while Pan's room is in his cell. He gives him cigarettes and he treats him nicely. And Pan's room uh, takes a liking to the young guard and they begin to have a friendly relationship. In his interview, Henry states, quote, I asked him about his racket, which means, why are you in here? Mm. Carl would reply. I said I was being held for investigation. I reform people. I kill them and put them out of their misery. <laughs> Yikes. Yep. Now, a prison guard making friends with an inmate was something that was contrary to the rules of the profession. It's the standard love tale of prisoner meets prison guard and they fall in love and have little prisoner babies. She says. They're in and out of jail. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's fine. A man named Colonel Peak was the superintendent of the Washington, D.C. jail when Henry Lesser was employed as an officer there. One day, shortly after Pansrum arrived at the jail, Colonel Peak called all the guards, uh, all the guards going on shift that afternoon into his office and told them that they had a very dangerous man in their midst and to be extra careful. They're like, yeah, we usually do. Well, what the fuck are you about? evidently all the guards went to the cell just to take a look. Because uh, they know of his previous escape attempts at this point. Mm. And what they, what they find is that some of the bars were loose. Mm. Uh, Pan's room had actually like chipped at the concrete <laughs> already. Is, funny story is he was actually doing it with his teeth. <laughs> he was doing it with his hate. He was just using his hate. He was using the force of hatred. Pan's room had been taken out of that cell and was hauled down to the basement of the institution. And that moment... Colonel Peak had ordered them to the post down in the basement of the jail. Not the post. He was handcuffed around a wooden post with a rope tied to the handcuffs. Hmm. You can see where this is going. Yeah, nice places. Yep. Then the guards then hoisted the 200-pound prisoner up by his bound wrists so that just his toes were touching the ground. His arms were extended above his head, all of his weight on his cuffed wrists, his shoulders cramping and likely dislocating or coming close hmm. he was left in this position for a day and a half Shit. during this period of torture Pansrum cursed his own parents for giving him life and swore he would kill everyone given the chance he was then dumped back into his cell but the agony wasn't over yet the very next day the guards came to retrieve Pan's room for more torture, but this time he resisted fighting them back. I feel like this is a good way to get recidivism. What? You know? Right. Yeah, <laughs> with well, he fought them with. He punched and he hit. The guards then turned around, beat him unconscious, and then left him tied to the post again all night. During the course of this night of torment, Pansrum also admitted to the murders of several young boys and told so. the guards how much he enjoyed it. I can hear your lighter. That's over the sound there. of me smoking weed. <laughs> That's the sound of the lighter. Yeah. So even during this time, this activity was something that had to be conducted in the most subterranean part of the institution and something that people really were ashamed of. I bet. Henry they, they knew it was wrong even then. Right. Well, Henry would go on to say decades later that he was greatly distressed about the activities going on in this prison. He felt Carl was a man in the clutches of the law, and they had no right to do what they did to him, even oh. though he was a murderer. Right. Just kill him or, you know, right. put him so in a nice place and give he, him flowers. And 
He doesn't need a nice place with flowers. I, I don't mean My like goodness. A, I don't mean like a nice house. I mean like a four walls and some food, <laughs> like a prison. I mean, I don't. I'm I hear saying, you. you know, I hear beat you. his ass. Well, Henry told a team member to take a dollar bill to Carl because he knew he had no money, and that there was there was a canteen uh, in the prison where prisoners could buy some smokes, they could buy sweet stuff, commissary, so man. on and so on. Yeah. Well, he called it a canteen. I called that. So this man. Uh, went past Pansrum's cell and said, hey, Carl, there's a guard here named Henry Lesser, and he sent a dollar to you. Now, Henry Lesser would talk about his experiences with Pansrum years later. The interview that I watched was filmed in 1979, and he passed away in 1982, so he only lived a few years, more years after this interview. Mm-hmm. Henry was the one that encouraged Pansrum to write his memoirs. So this man had probably more contact with Carl Pansrum and lived to tell about it than anybody else. No shit. So Imagine he had, trying to tame that fucking right? beast. It's like, I killed a hundred fucking however many people. I know. It's like, calm down, buddy. Well, once Carl develops a sense of trust with Lesser... Uh, Pansrum begins to open up to the young guard and begins to tell him the story of his miserable life. Henry felt that Carl had a story too, and he encouraged him to write his autobiography. Carl would say, quote, Jesus Christ, I can't do that. I went to school, but only to the sixth grade. I've never written anything. Henry told him to start it. He encouraged Carl, and it took a couple weeks until he finally started writing. Henry smuggled in paper and pencils because prisoners weren't allowed to have these things. Because you can stab a guy right? with a pencil. But Lesser provides him with the writing materials. And over the next few weeks, Carl would scroll down the details of his hate-driven, murder-filled life. He'd fold up the pages and place them on the bars when he was done writing for the day. And Lesser would pick them up, stick them in his jacket, and sneak them out of the jail. At this time, such correspondence wasn't allowed and would have gotten Pansrum even more punishment should have been discovered. Mm. Not to mention, it likely would have gotten his only friend in his whole life fired immediately from his post. Mm. In this unprecedented and extraordinary 40,000-word autobiography... This guy saw a dollar bill sign. ...slash confession, Pansrum gives details of all of the murders he had committed over the years, which were later confirmed with local authorities. Mm. He supplied a cohesive and accurate timeline of crimes with places, dates, and times, as well as an arrest record, which was, to say the least, extensive. Quite a bit extensive. Extended it. Well, he also wrote about his ability to escape the authorities by changing identities, which he did at least a dozen times, making notes of the ones he was arrested under, which were Jefferson Baldwin, Jeffrey Rhodes, John King, and John O'Leary. My associates, all of my surroundings, the atmosphere of deceit, treachery, brutality, degeneracy, hypocrisy, and everything that is bad and nothing that is good. Why am I? What am I? I'll tell you why. I did not make myself what I am. Others had the making of me. In the text, not only did he recap his own life and crimes, but he also gave his opinion on crime and the American criminal justice system as a whole from the inside perspective of a lifelong criminal. He's got some insight. All of your police, judges, lawyers, wardens, doctors, national crime commissioners, and writers have combined to find out and remedy the cause and effect of crime. With all this knowledge and power at their command, 
They have accomplished nothing except to make conditions worse instead of better. He blamed crime on society, which he said perpetuates itself by producing more criminals. I am 36 years old and have been a criminal all my life. I have 11 felony convictions against me. I have served 20 years of my life in jails, reform schools, and prisons. I know why I am a criminal. He laid the blame for his violent life on those who tortured and punished him. Might makes right was the only rule he ever learned, and he carried that belief with him wherever he went. In my lifetime, I have broken every law that was ever made by both man and God. If either had made any more, I should very cheerfully have broken them also. Good gosh. Good golly. Wow. Page after page, Pansram described in detail his odyssey of crime, murder, and rape. But markedly absent from these pages was any shred of remorse. Mm -hmm. Pansram, by his own admission, never once felt any pangs of regret or guilt for anything he had ever done. He saw crime and victimization as a way of balancing the scales and getting back at the world that had done him wrong. It seemed to matter little that the people who he victimized had not had a direct role in his plight. All that mattered was that someone, somewhere, had to pay. Despite the outlet of writing to lay out the reason and cause of his crimes, Pansrum was eternally an outlaw and unable to acclimate to a strict prison environment. Hmm. Shocker. No. no. <laughs> he was constantly uncooperative. Shanking motherfuckers. Right. Shanking he was a fucking troublemaker. He's constantly uncooperative and violent, and even if he knew it meant more physical punishment and torture, would follow the behavior. He would continue. Hmm. Even after his escape attempt and subsequent uh, cuffing to the post, he attacked three guards when he was to be removed from his cell. It took a bludgeoning from a blackjack to get him off the guards and again resulted in another hanging from the post. Wow. As a result, the reporting officer wrote, quote, This prisoner called the captain of the watch a goddamn son of a bitch <laughs> and stated that he would like to knock the captain in the back of the head. End quote. Right. <laughs> of course, more punishment followed. Yeah, why not? But why not? the slow and massive wheels of justice were turning. Later that same month, on October 29th, an arrest warrant for Pansrum arrived at the D.C. jail. It was, uh, it was a murder indictment from Philadelphia charging Pansrum for the death of Alexander Lusak by strangling and choking on July 26, 1928, at Point House Road. The Salem Police Department in the state of Massachusetts had also learned about Pansrum's arrest and his extensive confession during his stay at the D.C. jail. Salem police brought in two witnesses from uh, the George Henry McMahon killing in 1922 to have a look at Pansrum. Both witnesses positively identified him as the person they saw on that night the 12-year-old was killed. Oregon State Penitentiary contacted Washington police and asked that Pansrum be held as an escapee who still owed 14 years on his original sentence. Mm -hmm. So, by early 1929, Pansrum must have finally realized that he would never get out of jail this time. He wrote a letter to District Attorney Clark in Salem, Massachusetts about the McMahon killing. In this shocking letter, Pansrum repeated his admissions regarding the murder. Quote, I made a full confession of this murder of McMahon. 
You sent a number of witnesses from Salem to identify me, which they done. Mm. I do not change my former confession in any way. I committed that murder. I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but 21 besides. And I assure you here and now that if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall surely knock off another 22. End quote. Okay. This guy is... What? He, he doesn't like society very much. <laughs> He's not fitting into the world. Doesn't play well with others. In an extreme way, yeah. So his trial for the burglary and housebreaking charges, which initially landed him in the D.C. jail, opened on November 12th, 1928. Pansrum foolishly acted as his own attorney and frequently terrified the nine-man, three-woman jury with his unpredictable and combative behavior. I picture him talking like that rooster in the Warner Brothers. I say, I say, say, I'll say. (laughs) I'll kill all of you. I'll say, I'll kill all of you. So when a witness, Joseph Serwinski of Baltimore, testified against him, Pansrum stood to ask the witness a question. Do you know me? He said, as he moved within inches of the man's face. Take a good look at me, he whispered, as he, as the frightened witness looked into those steel-gray eyes of his. Pansrum then dragged his fingers across his neck, giving the sign of a slit throat. Hmm. The message was crystal clear. At the end of the trial, Pansrum took the stand and not only admitted to the burglary, but told the court that he intentionally remained in the house for several hours, hoping the owners would come home so he could kill them. <laughs> This is the opposite of what you should say on the stand to get out of jail. Come on, man. Not trying to get out of jail. Dude's the worst attorney ever. (laughs) So on November 12th, 1928, he was found guilty. Surprise! Mm. On all counts. (laughs) I thought that for sure. I know, right, right. Judge Walter McCoy sentenced him to 15 years on the first count and 10 years on the second to run consecutive. Pansrum would have to serve 25 years back at the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. When he heard the sentence, Pansrum's face broke into a broad, evil grin. Hmm. Visit me, he said to the judge. (laughs) Visit me back. Come see me, man. So on the day he arrived at Leavenworth, February 1st, 1929, Pansrum was brought in to see Warden T.B. White bound in chains despite walking with a limp due to his lack of a medical attention at Danamora, Pansrum was still an impressive physical specimen. As the warden read him the rules of the institution, Pansrum stood quietly in front of the desk with an attitude of indifference. When the warden finished, the prisoner looked him squarely in the eye and said, I'll kill the first man that bothers me. The warden called for the guards and had Pansrum, inmate number 31614, removed to his cell. If I was if I was in that, I just couldn't help myself. I'd be like, define bothers you. Is it bothersome if I talk to you a lot? Is it, oh, God, I have to get that shank on Oh, my God. So Pansrum was considered too psychotic to mix with the general prison population. Yeah, fair enough. So in a handwritten letter to the warden dated March 26, 1929, Pansrum had asked for a different work detail and wrote, quote, I want that job, the new one, because I'm doing a long time and I'm an old crank. I'm old, cranky, and I want to be by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm just an asshole. And the job I have now, I don't like standing on my broken ankles. It bothers me. He's going to hurt somebody. Right. If he's, that's what he's saying. Like, the, I'm about to 
Pretty much. I'm going to break my ankle off and stab a guy with my broken bone. Break it off. I'm going to rip my own foot off and kill somebody with the bone. Why not? He was assigned to the laundry room where he would work all day alone, sorting and washing inmate clothes. There, he could withdraw into himself and have very little contact with humans. Hmm. His supervisor, though, was Robert Warnicki. He was a small, balding man who was notorious for writing up prisoners for minor infractions. Why's balding got to be a way to describe I don't know. the guy? Good That's God. how it was described in the Corky book. Fuck. So transgressions against the rules were oh, a goodness. serious matter at Leavenworth. Punishment included solitary confinement, a revocation of concession and library privileges, and sometimes even torture. Hmm. Warnicki was a civilian employee and therefore not under the same pressures as the inmates. He used his supervisory position to wield power. Hmm. From the beginning, Pansrum had trouble with Warnicki. On several occasions, <laughs> not right. a guy you want to have I a know, lot of right, trouble right. with. You kind of want to keep your head down around I this know, dude. Don't, 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 don't make eye contact. On several occasions, Pansrum had ri- was written up for infractions, which caused him to be sent to solitary for a time. When he was last released from the cell, Pansrum told the other prisoners to stay away from Warnicky <laughs> because he was going to die soon. Coming for you. <laughs> okay. Carl wrote his friend Henry Lesser and a do- that a new job was in the works. Quote, I'm getting all set for a change. It won't be long now. End quote. On June 20th, 1929, Pansrum was working in the laundry at his usual detail. Leaning against the door was a four-foot-long iron bar used as a support for the wooden transport crates. Without a word, he picked up, walked over, picked up the heavy bar, and approached Warnicki, who was preparing paperwork. This tool will be useful later. Right. Pansrum raised the bar high over his broad shoulders and brought it down squarely on the man's head. Four feet, huh? Warnicki's skull broke instantly. Here's another one for you, you son of a bitch. He screamed as the victim fell to the ground. Pansrum smashed the bar bar continuously on the man's head, sending blood and bone matter all over the room. Hmm. There were other inmates in the laundry that day, and they stood back and watched in horror as Pansrum beat Warnicki. They're like, uh, hey, do you want my lunch tomorrow yeah. and for the rest well, of my life? Do you the, just want my desserts? These, I can give them to these you. Other inmates, these men, these other inmates, they tried to escape, but Pansrum decided that since he'd already killed one man, he should, you may as well kill the others as well. Mm. One of the no, inmates was in the corner of the room. And I'll Car- give you my lunch. <laughs> you my dessert. One inmate was in the corner of the room and Carl managed to break the man's arm before he could, he could actually escape. The other inmates desperately tried to get out of the room, but the doors were all locked. Hmm. All the man began to scream for help as Pansrum chased them around the room, shouting and cursing, swinging this huge iron bar, smashing bones, desks, lights, breaking the furniture into tiny pieces and sending the terrified inmates crawling up the walls to get away from this raging madman. A general alarm sounded in the prison and dozens of guards armed with the submachine guns and high-powered rifles came running to the laundry. The guards looked through the bars into the room and saw the maniacal Pansrum holding a 20-pound iron steel bar like a baseball bat. His clothes shredded and covered head to toe with fresh blood, bone, and brain matter. Dude thinks he's playing Doom. Right? right. I just killed Warnicky, he said to the guards calmly. Let me in. (laughs) 
okay, no problem. They refused until he dropped the bar. Yeah, could you put down the thing that They're you like, bludgeoned a bunch of folk with? We're not letting you in until you put that down. Yeah. Oh, he said, oddly. <laughs> oh, whatever. Oh, okay. She's... Well, I guess this is my lucky day. As he tossed the bar aside and it fell noisily to the ground, and the guards, they carefully opened the door. Panzerum walked quietly to his cell without saying a word and then just sat down on his bunk. He did slip a little bit because of the brain matter. I know, right? Just leaking off him. This is just crazy. By the time his trial began, Panzerum was well known in law enforcement circles and rumors of his lust for raping and killing children was widespread. Okay, okay, so I got to go back to this. Hmm. Oh, goody, let's focus on... Okay, so these, these, these... in these these guards, they all had guns. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they're like, "We're not going to shoot this fucker." Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so while I was reading this, I had this mental image as the story's playing in my head. I have I'm kind of like playing it out visually in my brain. So they're standing there and they've got guns, but they're not going to shoot him. And the only thing I could think of was that he just tried to kill a whole room full of people by himself. He pretty much did. I think that they thought that we'll ju- they'll just make him mad. I mean, <laughs> they'll probably just piss him off if we shoot him. They're, 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 and they're sitting there looking at each other, counting the bullets like, I don't I know. know. <laughs> He's an angry dude. If, if, we, we, if we shoot him, we're going to piss him off and he'll just run at us, rip our heads off yeah. and pull our spines out our asses. So, yeah, yeah let's not shoot him. We've got 18 <laughs> bullets. I'm pretty sure if we hit eight, all center mass, we could still probably not drop this fucking guy. So the fact that these men were armed with guns and they're like, yeah, we're not going to shoot him. We're not going to mess with this dude anymore. Mm-hmm. He just tur- he just tried to turn an entire room of people into people paste by himself. Yeah, made a lot of paperwork, but he did probably reduce the amount of you know leg, leg work that was and, going on. And there. then for him to just walk to his room and just sit down in his bunk, like like, all right, I'm done. I'm, I'm over it. I, I told, want a sandwich. I told this guy to stop messing with me. I told you I was going to kill him, so I killed him. <laughs> and his friends were it's like, well, what about the other 17 people? Or however many people. I mean. <laughs> they were egging his ass on and they fucking said I couldn't have you their could, shit. You could accuse Carl Panzerum of a lot of things, but being a liar doesn't seem to be one of them. His story had already appeared in dozens of newspapers, including the Topeka Times, the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer. In March 1929, he wrote a letter to the deputy warden. I understand that there are a number of charges against me, several for murder and one for being an escaped convict from Oregon. Will you please let me know how many warrants there are against me, where they are from, and what charges? Oh, how polite. He's trying to get this shit down. He's like, let me just figure this out. Where are we at? He wants a spreadsheet type situation. I know. Yeah. Excel format. On April 16th, 1930, the Chicago Evening America reported, quote, Despite the fact that he boasted of killing 23 persons, that he would like to kill thousands and then commit suicide, Pansrum is sane to the extent that he knows right from wrong, end quote. Hmm. Authorities in Salem, Philadelphia and New Haven were actively preparing criminal cases against Pansrum while he remained in solitary at Leavenworth. Throughout this period, Pansrum kept up his written correspondence with Henry Lesser and wrote a series of letters about his life in Leavenworth. Weird pen pal. 
He com- well, he complained often about the lack of reading material, but praised the quality of the food. <laughs> he said that being in prison made him feel more human. And <laughs> These beans are great, <clears throat> but I'm sick of this Sports Illustrated right. crap. Well, he said that being there made him feel more human and less like the animal that he thought he was. Hmm. When he arrived at Leavenworth, he figured he'd be beaten and abused anyway, so he decided he wouldn't be beaten for nothing. He immediately tried to escape and was caught. He became hostile and uncooperative with the guards. However, this time there were no beatings. No one lays a hand on me. No one abuses me in any way. I've been trying to figure it out, and I've come to the conclusion that if in the beginning I had been treated as I am now, then there wouldn't have been quite so many people that have been robbed, raped, and killed. Um. <laughs> oh, yikes. So, if you would have been nice, I wouldn't I have massacred what? all those people. Okay, so that still doesn't, it doesn't fit. I mean, if he had to do something to start this whole process, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He had to be bad in the beginning. We remember. We remember. Yeah. He did bad things. Anyways. He's wired I'm thinking up. that maybe the reason they decided not to mess with this guy is because they literally saw him turn a man's head into soup. Mm. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they witnessed him do that and then walk back to his cell like nothing happened. Perhaps... Perhaps that's a reason they yeah. decided not to fuck with him anymore. You just build a, just a theory. You build a reputation. You kind of got a little soup. bit. Soup. Yeah. You, made, <laughs> you, you killed a guy by making his brain soup. So, I mean. So, when his trial began on April 14th, 1930 for Warnicki's murder, Pansrum was defiant and uncooperative. He limped into the courtroom at 930 in the morning. His awkward gait, the lifelong reminder of the quote-unquote medical treatment years before in the dungeons of Danamora. Hmm. Have you an attorney? Asked Judge Hopkins on the morning of opening testimony. No, and I don't want one, answered Pansrum. Hopkins went on to advise the defendant that he had a constitutional right to represent to representation and should use the services of an attorney who would be appointed to him for free. Pansrum replied by cursing the judge loudly. I could just imagine I could just imagine him saying, Fuck you. When asked for a plea, he stood and sneered at the court, quote, I plead not guilty. Now you go ahead and prove me guilty, understand? He said. (laughs) What the fuck? The prosecutor called a parade of witnesses. Appearing were Warden T.B. White, who also brought the murder weapon to court, five Leavenworth guards, and ten prisoners. Several prisoners testified that they saw Pansrum smash the skull of his helpless victim with an iron bar repeatedly while Warnicki lay unconscious on the prison floor. Throughout the testimony, Pansrum sat in his chair smiling at the witnesses. The jury took just 45 minutes to arrive at a verdict. To no surprise, Pansrum was found guilty of murder with no recommendation for mercy. They're like, we don't know how to get him off the planet. Well, I mean, Hopkins, him, yeah, so. Hopkins remanded him back to Leavenworth until, quote, the fifth day of September 1930, when between the hours of six to nine o'clock in the morning, you shall be taken to some suitable place within the confines of the penitentiary and hanged by the neck until dead. Hmm. Now, Panzerum, when he heard this, he seemed relieved. He was almost happy. This huge, Finally, I'm sick of this place. <clears throat> well, this huge grin like spread across his face, and he slowly got up from his chair. I mean, I, he says, I certainly want to thank you, Judge. Just let me get my fingers around your neck for 60 <laughs> seconds, and you'll never sit on another bench as Judge, he said 
to the shocked audience. Wow. Right? Interesting rebuttal. So Pandrum stood there defiant. His shirt was unbuttoned from the collar down, partially exposing this massive tattoo on his chest. He's just twisting his nipple a little bit. <laughs> nipple hair. Well, as his arms, his, his wrists were straining against these handcuffs and his face contorted into this weird sneer. U.S. Marshals surrounded Pansrum while he cursed the jury and then dragged him out of the courtroom. When the jury box, um, when the jury filed out of the box, they could hear his laughter. Sounded like a fucking maniac. He's still twisting Just his bouncing off the, the walls of the, the court. It's just insane. Hmm. I mean, that's one way to go, I guess. Yeah. Cursing the judge after he sentences you to hang. Cursing the jury and then cackling your ass off like a whacked out puppet (laughs) some batman i mean seriously definitely i mean we're talking about him today so yeah this was uh how long ago 1920 1930 1930 yeah so long time ago it's a long time ago Mm -hmm. so the last person to be legally executed in kansas before 1930 was william dixon in 1870 though others were sentenced to death since dixon all the capital Punishment cases were commuted by a succession of governors. State executions were finally abolished in 1907, but the most famous death sentence was handed out in the history of the state was to Robert Stroud, the so-called Birdman of Alcatraz. Mm. So he was sentenced to death for a murder of a prison guard on March 26, 1916. Stroud was on death row at Leavenworth Prison with Pansrum at the same time. And at times, the two men did, they conversed. Stroud, like Pansrum, was also uh, evidently a sullen, maniacal egocentric, a Mm. true misanthrope who seldom spoke to anyone. And even during his later years at Alcatraz, he spoke even less. He spent time battling the system, filing appeals, making endless demands on prison staff for his research. Both men had little to say to one another, but both carefully studied the progress of their own gallows construction, which was clearly visible outside the cell block windows. Imagine watching that shit. Right? Stroud uh, evidently had been a pimp in civilian life who had killed one of his prostitute's customers in 1906 in Juneau, Alaska. Stroud would eventually escape the gallows, but he did remain in prison until he died in 1963. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. He was called the Birdman of Alcatraz, but he kept his birds at Leavenworth. Well, he never had birds at Alcatraz. <clears throat> yeah, and he, he was, just had the reputation. Right. Well, he was eventually transferred to Alcatraz from Leavenworth Prison, and Alcatraz was where he died in 1963. Hmm. So, a little bit of history there. Hmm. So, for Pansrum, the death sentence was a relief. And he resisted all attempts to have a stay of execution. I look forward to a seat in the electric chair or a dance at the end of a rope, just like some folks do on their wedding night. What? Yeah, that's a... What? It's a weird way to look at... Okay. So even during the 1930s, there were several national organizations who strenuously objected to the death penalty on moral and ethical grounds. Now, one of these groups was called the Society for the Abolishment of Capital Punishment. They petitioned the governor's office for a pardon or a commutation of sentence, a fact that absolutely infuriated Pansrum. (laughs) He He was pissed. On May 23rd, he wrote to the society and said, The only things that you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf 
is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me. And I believe the only way to reform people is to kill them. <laughs> Jesus, fuck. This is the guy you want to help, huh? All right. Sounds good. Oh, God. So on May 30th, Pansrum wrote another letter to President Herbert Hoover. Ex- Dear Hoover, I hope your neck is within my hands. Right. Yeah. Well, he ex- he's expressing his concerns over a possible change in senten- sentencing. And he said uh, he was, quote, perfectly satisfied with my trial and the sentence. I do not want another trial. I absolutely refuse to accept either a pardon or a commutation should either one or the other be offered to me, end quote. Wow. Trying to pardon him. Go ahead and go on out. He's like, stop it. No. (laughs) He's like, how many? Just give me a chair and let me have like 40 people. I will kill them all. Can I just stay in jail? Please come on. Just kill me. Well, I wanted to bring this up. This is an interesting tidbit of information. So there was a book written and uh, they, they speak about... Um, Bert Stroud and Pansrum's relationship mm. and at one point because they were within shouting distance of each other they were like four four cells apart you can picture him playing checkers and just like punching each other well Fuck you, buddy. the funny thing was Stroud knew that Pansrum he he seemed to want to die he wanted to die right um, but I don't think that he wanted to kill himself I think he wanted to just no longer be on the planet mm-hmm. But Stroud, it's uh, allegedly Stroud, the Birdman, mm-hmm. gave right. he gave Pansrum two razor blades. Oh, nice. So he had taken the razor blades out of his razor and kind of hid them in this little piece of paper folded up that he actually painted so that it looked like the prison floor. Oh, smart. And he slid it across the way, and it another prison inmate they would help each other and they would slide this thing along the way and it made it to Pansrum's cell Pansrum held on to those um that in sounds case, like something out of a movie right well this was in a book so evidently this is the story that Stroud had told uh Pansrum held on to these razor blades just in case he got his sentence was commuted because then he was going to kill himself hmm. Stroud also gave him suggestions on how to kill himself and where to cut himself. But basically what he was doing was kind of like shouting like a crazy man into the hall. And it was kind of, uh, I guess he was just kind of throwing this information out there. Even though it was meant for Pansrum, it sounded like he was just shouting facts into the air. Twist the dick! I know, so it was kind of, anyways, a little tidbit of information there. So on the cold, dusty morning of Friday, September 5th, 1930... Carl Pansrum was taken from his cell for the last time at 5.55 a.m. and escorted to the gallows. Hmm. A handful of the newspaper men and a dozen guards acted as witnesses. Few persons in this assemblage appeared under emotional strain. One reporter later wrote Pansrum's demeanor was rebellious as always. He stopped in his stroll to the gallows to abruptly turn on his heel and shout, Boo! at the guards to startle them sheesh right he cursed his own mother for bringing him into the world and no okay so he did he actually seriously pulled the boo prank yeah i mean he turned around while on the march to his own death and turned around and tried to scare the guards i wonder if one of the guards fucking crazy let a little chunk go i know (laughs) 
<laughs> Boo. Could you imagine? Trip so anyways, he's cursing his own mother for bringing him into the world. Uh, and the and also the whole damned human race. He cursed the whole human race as well. well he tried to kill as many of them as he could. Well, he's escorted by two U.S. Marshals uh, as he's walking. One with, one with poop in his pants. I know. After boo. Yeah. It's stated that he walked briskly to the wooden scaffold, dragging the guards behind him like a raging bull. Oh, he wanted with, to get there. With teeth clenched. Defiantly facing the crowd of officials, newspaper men, and guards gathered in the enclosure, he climbed the 13 steps to the platform and stood erect as the marshals attempted to place a black hood over his head. Before they completed their task, Pansram spit in the executioner's face and snarled, Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I could hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. Hmm. After the hood was secured, the marshal stepped back and without delay... And exactly 6.03 a.m., the trap doors sprung open, and with a crash, Pansrum dropped five and a half feet down. His large body jerked repeatedly and swung side from side in the sudden silence. And immediately, the executioner ran to the sink to wash that spit off his face. He was pronounced dead by Dr. Justin K. Fuller at 6.18 a.m. The Sunday Star later reported, quote, a hangman's noose at Levensworth, Kansas this morning snuffed out the life of Carl Panzerum, a man who swore he hated all humanity with a consuming passion. End quote. I believe him. The article described the doomed man's last few minutes and said he was, quote, the most criminally minded man in America. End quote. Robert Stroud later wrote that Panzerum was restless the night before the execution. All night long last night, he walked the floor of his cell, he said, singing a pornographic little song that he had composed himself. After Pansrum had was removed from the gallows, an autopsy was performed at the prison hospital. His body remained unclaimed, and later that same day, he was carted over to the prison cemetery in a wheelbarrow. The only identification on his tombstone is the number 31614. In 1922... When he was held prisoner at the D.C. City Jail, detectives questioned Pansrum about McMahon's murder in Salem, Massachusetts. One of the interrogators asked him, what was the point of killing a helpless child? Pansrum looked at him with cold, dead eyes and said, I'm sorry for only two things in my life. These two things are, I'm sorry that I've mistreated a few animals in my lifetime. And I'm sorry that I am unable to murder the whole damned human race. This very well could have been on his epitaph. Mm. He's buried in row number six, grave 24, forever in the shadow of Leavenworth's ominous prison walls. Wow. The end. That is a hell of a file that I'm glad to have over with. Isn't that insane? Let's finalize it on the other end of the thing. Okay. We learned some terrible things about a terrible person. Let's wrap it up, eh? All right, so this guy had quite a few connections to the big names. We, yeah. didn't, we didn't talk that much about Machine Gun Kelly. Well, so when he... I know, I, I missed... There's a lot of stuff that's not in here. Right, because um, it's a short podcast. We don't do big, long podcasts. Well, one thing that I thought was really interesting is when he was booked into Leavenworth the, the last time when mm-hmm. he went to Leavenworth, they actually booked him under that, uh, his, that, that number, 31614 or whatever, mm-hmm. as Carl Pansran. With really? an N instead of an M at the end. 
Why? It was a typo. Okay. I'm I'm thinking it was a typo, but the guy had so many names anyway. Well, the guy who did it, uh, the one, the clerk Mm -hmm. that was working for the clerk, the uh, I guess the intake clerk, Mm -hmm. was. I can't remember his exact name, but anyways, it was Machine Gun Kelly. Really? He was the one doing all the typing. So he did the typo. He, Machine Gun Kelly, uh, he's got three names, and I don't have them sitting in front of me, but he's the one that typed Carl Pan's rum, mm-hmm. his name, and misspelled it. Okay, well, I think you're probably ready to put this guy behind you. Yes. This was a lot of research. Mm-hmm. This made me think that maybe some people, I don't know what you should do with a person like this, but a rage room where they can just break stuff seems like a good idea. I feel like it's a good business model for today mm-hmm. to just have a room where you give a dude a bat and some fucking safety goggles and maybe some elbow pads or some so shit. So like an escape room for a psycho. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of rewarding them, but it's like, well, just so they don't have to bash a bunch of people in, you know, let them smash some mannequins. Let yeah. them sma- I mean, it might be just training. This isn't good. But well, I'm I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Do I, I know things? No. I don't know. I don't know what to do with people like him. I mm. mean, he seems to think that if people were just nicer to him, he wouldn't have been such a bastard. Mm-hmm. The thing is, <clears throat> he was awful from the beginning. Yeah. But he was also an abused kid. So that I think the principle is if you have somebody that's already kind of wired fucked up, mm-hmm. it's best just to be nice. I mean, to I mean you inter- should be nice. And, you know, safety first, protect safety. the house, you know, <laughs> definitely want to pad everything. How, how in the hell do you remain safe from a guy like that? I don't know. But being mean to them, the alternative that we're talking about mm-hmm. is worse because it just, I mean, he's telling you, he's like, well, I want to kill people. But now I really want to kill people because he, the look thing what you've done that, to me. Right. Well, the thing I found interesting is he never, there's a couple of stories in there and he never attempted to hurt um, Lesser, right. that, that nice prison guard, never once. In fact, uh, he went in and he stepped in the cell with Carl at one point. And he was there for an inspection or something. He lost two fingers though because he got too close to his mouth. No. Oh, okay. He literally walked in the cell and turned his back on Carl on purpose. Wow. On purpose. And <laughs> he's like a daredevil. Well, his Carl, real life is he's like evil Knievel. It was it was done uh, it, allegedly it was done as a show of I trust you. And this is after he'd been giving him money and and just making friends with this guy. He turned his back on him um and Carl said, "Don't turn your back on me." Hmm. He said, I've killed a lot of people and I don't want to kill you, but I'm unpredictable. I'm tempted. Is right. what he's saying. Yeah. Pretty much. He's like, I'm, I'm unpredictable. So please don't ever do that. <laughs> Yikes. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. that make the hair on your wherever mm-hmm. go up. All right. This is the end. Thank yes. you guys so much for listening. Thank you for all your hard research. Mm. I know this was two weeks of dealing with the same piece of shit mm-hmm. and uh, quite a bit of work. So, And as always, a lot on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. There's more to look into with him for sure. Absolutely. If you'd like to let us know more about it or if you guys would like to tell us how we're doing, info at scatcast.com. Mm-hmm. You can really let us know how we're doing by reaching out at Patreon mm-hmm. and joining up there. We have a whole a lovely community of folks. We call it the Litter Box. And they'll, many people will welcome you with welcoming arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a dollar, you can join and you can get a few cool things. You get the Dave and Angus Watch Show every Monday. Uh, for $5, you get our Inside Scooper and a bunch of other bonus crap. Tons mm-hmm. of extra skitscats. There's even a bonus dipshit files in there. Mm-hmm. And more to come. All right, thanks to our, trush, our trusted turd triad. Trusted turd. Trusted 
<laughs> but Don the Shitbox Wizard, we we love him. He's mm-hmm. a, he's a good shit. Uh, to our Discord Dookie Slayer, Chris, mm-hmm. and to our Quartermaster Bodie, mm-hmm. much love to those guys. Uh, Minnie and to PJ, mm-hmm. they take care of our subreddit, the mm-hmm. Scatcast subreddit. So you can find us on subreddit, you can find or on the Reddit. You can find us in Discord, on Facebook, in the Shitbox. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to do a real quick shout out to uh, Easy. <laughs> his birthday. Happy birthday, Easton. I wish I would have known it before. I would have thrown it on the Scatcast, but he's getting it now, so the day late. Happy birthday. But happy birthday. And it was also Shaden, uh, yes. our host here on Scatcast. We, we didn't even send him up, did we? Did we even do anything for him? Well. We're like, eat a dick, dude. <laughs> we we happy, got him a cake, but we ate it. Happy birthday, Shaden. Without him around, yeah. But we, I saved him some maple leaf uh Ketchup flavored Cheetos. Maple flavored Cheetos. Maple leaf shaped. Maple Cheetos. Maple leaf shaped. (laughs) Maple syrup ketchup. That would be the most Canadian thing of all time. Shaped like a moose's ass. But anyway, all right, that's the end. We've also got lots of people think. Hoje, mm-hmm. who's moved to the Northwest, mm-hmm. he runs our Jargoneer page. Uh, David Carpenter, who lives mm-hmm. in the Northwest, he runs our, so much stuff. He does a ton mm-hmm. of things. Scat Meme page, yep. all that good stuff. He's also uh, Scat Gaming, too. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. there's some cool stuff. He even has a Spotify uh, playlist, I believe. It's that's called awesome. Scat Play. Nice. Yeah, and we might collaborate with him on that, because I like the idea of that. Mm-hmm. There's lots of people to thank. There's so many people doing things behind the scenes. And we appreciate the shit out of you. Yes, we do. And as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. It will. Bye. Bye. Bing. Bong. 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 Bing. 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 Bong.